This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Rod Campbell, Research Director at the Australia Institute, joined me to discuss how Australia can gain a Nordic edge in its policy and politics. Rod is a co-editor of a new book called The Nordic Edge, Policy Possibilities for Australia. Then, author Harry Sadler joined me to discuss his new book, Questions Raised by Quolls, Fatherhood and Conservation in an Uncertain World. It's a very pertinent subject in a time of climate and extinction crisis. Then, the final interview you'll hear is with Professor Mary Louise McLaws. Mary Louise is an epidemiologist at UNSW and a member of the World Health Organization's Advisory Panel for Infection Prevention and Control Preparedness and Response to COVID-19. Mary Louise joined me to examine the federal government's COVID-19 vaccination modelling. She tells us what this modelling involves, the assumptions that are made, and whether the vaccination targets are high enough in order to safely open up Australia. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with me, Amy Mullins. And gosh, I'm so excited to talk about this topic. Um, It's really all about Nordic policy and politics. And uh, it's always something that really people kind of think is a far-flung place. It's, you know, very different. It's freezing cold. They all seem to, you know, speak some kind of really difficult languages to pick up. Um, you know, they have really interesting traditions, especially at Christmas time. So, you know, plenty of differences, plenty of interesting, fascinating places and environments that they're living in, uh, these Nordic countries, but they also have some really wonderful policies. And it is a quite a regular thing for governments to look around the rest of the world to see if other policies and programs have been trialled in different countries and whether they've worked and if they could, you know, steal the ideas a bit. Um, And that's something that Australia does as well as other countries, but they don't seem to have done enough stealing, I think, from the Nordic countries. Um, And so that's what all of this book is about. And it is co-edited by Andrew Scott and Rod Campbell. And I'm going to be speaking just now with Rod Campbell, who is the research director at the Australia Institute. And the book is called The Nordic Edge, Policy Possibilities for Australia. It is published by Melbourne University Press. It also has footnotes, which gets me very excited. So (laughs) I'm going to welcome Rod now and thank you for joining me. No worries. I also get excited by a good footnote. Oh, it's really, I actually get pure joy and it uplifts me because you get to look but look down straight away and see where the source is. Yeah, and, yeah. and just how much faith am I going to put in this source? You know, yeah. just, uh, just, just where are they getting this information from? And, yeah, you can uh, find out straight away whether or not you think this is uh, a, uh, a, worthwhile, a worthwhile fact or a, 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 real fact. A, a real fact. Yes, which is very critical in this day and age when facts are, you know, under a lot of pressure. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was trying to find the right the right Donald Trump quote uh, there, <clears throat> whatever he said or his aide said about alternative facts. Oh um, yes. And you know, just picking up on on your introduction, I mean, a lot of the the point of this book was Australia spends so much time comparing ourselves to the US. Uh, obviously, traditionally, we've compared ourselves to the UK. Every now and again, we look across the Dutch at New Zealand. 
Uh, and, you know, sometimes we, we look at our main Asian trading partners and neighbours. Um, but, if you know, a lot of the social policies uh, in these countries haven't gone very well for the last couple of decades or centuries. And, yeah, the point of the book is there are places where things have gone well, where inequality has lessened, where decent environmental policy hasn't torn the country's politics apart. Uh, and we should be looking at those places, not forever looking at where things are going wrong. Yeah, well, they are really declining and inequality is rising in places like the UK with Boris Johnson's government and previous Tory governments. Uh, and obviously, you know, the NHS under pressure. There's a lot of concerning things happening there. There's also obviously concerning things that have been happening in the US. And it's a really long road to climb for Joe Biden to even improve basic things like healthcare, which obviously has been politicised so much in America for such a long time. So, yeah, it is kind of striking to think that we would look to them and make these kind of comparisons. Uh, given Australia's history and proud history, at least from a labour, I guess, perspective of in Medicare, for example, and um, our tertiary education system and a whole range of things that you would associate with a social democracy. And technically, the Labor Party, I think, still references social democracy in their um, party platform. I'm not sure if um, they follow that as much anymore. Uh, but I wanted to get your thoughts um, first up before we dive into the subjects, or range of subjects in this book, which is the fact that we just did see Labor actually kind of take a decision that would be contrary to what a Nordic country would do in terms of the taxation system. Oh, absolutely. It's uh, contrary to uh, Nordic um, approaches to tax, which are generally quite progressive. I mean, Nordic tax systems are, are quite different to Australia. And I think, I think people, when they think about um, Nordic countries and social policy, you know, I think people are generally aware that they're, you know, they're high taxing countries, um, but there's a big social welfare net. And so the book is, is about unpacking that a bit and, and looking into the details of how that works, and uh, yeah, certainly a flat tax for people earning between forty-five thousand and two hundred thousand dollars a year, which is what uh, the Labor Party's just signed on to, um, is 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 not part of the book. No. Um, and uh, but but um, importantly, what what this does do is, um, while that might have been a terrible policy decision. Um, we, we are going to have to have a debate about tax in Australia. And, you know, I just saw Anthony Albanese saying that that decision was based on not wanting to re-prosecute the, the arguments of last year. Uh, but this, this argument isn't going away. Uh, mm. Australians do want more and better services and we will at some stage need to have to pay for them. And so how Australia is going to pay for the services that we want um, is, is an argument that's not going to go away. And so uh, everyone should read our book and get, to, get some more ideas about that. Yeah. And so when we're talking about a Nordic country, um, it, there are really five countries that you're referencing and discussing in this book, which is Sweden, Finland, Denmark, Norway, and Iceland. And it's something that has been on my radar, which is the fact that Given how rare a female president or prime minister is in the world, uh, it is really interesting that both Finland and Iceland have 
female prime ministers um, and that Finland's prime minister, Sanna Marin, was actually the world's youngest prime minister at age 34 at the end of 2019. Take that, Uh, Jacinda. Exactly. (laughs) Not that it's a competition, but it is. Um, And she's a really impressive leader, but the fact that she also is leading a five-party coalition that are also led uh, in a great majority by women shows really just how different they are um, to Australia, I guess, in the sense that we are lagging behind at least certain parts of our our party system are very much lagging behind in their ability to include women and let them run for winnable seats um, and also then promote them to senior leadership positions. So, I mean, that's something that when you look over there, you go, gosh, they must be different because, you know, we're kind of I guess we finally had our first female prime minister with Julia Gillard, but it seems like a far, far away land to see that level of representation of women at those highest levels. So, you know, what do you say to people when they say, oh, well, gosh, they must be super different over there in those Nordic countries? You know, what could we possibly learn from them because their culture must be different, Um, you know, that they they just do things differently. It can't be translatable. Obviously, that's something you deal with uh, with Andrew in your first chapter in this book. Yeah, yeah, we, we take that on in the first chapter. And, uh, look, it's it's just not true. I mean, the, the general perception that uh, Nordic countries are full of tall, blonde, Volvo-driving uh, people who uh, don't have much of a sense of humour. Um, look, I, I can't... Uh, can't speak much for their sense of humour, not based on my Swedish friends. Um, but in, in terms of demographics, um, Nordic countries actually aren't that different to Australia. Uh, in terms of their, their total population uh, across those five countries, it's actually pretty similar to Australia's. Um, the idea that they're all blonde Volvo drivers uh, is pretty mistaken. Um, most uh, across various statistics, you know, you see Swedes are... Uh, more likely to have uh, daily work interactions with people not born in in Sweden than just about anywhere else. Uh, they've had some very generous uh, refugee intakes, and you know they they really are not the homogenous cultures that uh, they're they're sometimes um, set out to be or sometimes perceived as being. And really, if, if you look at those statistics, actually, Australia is pretty comparable to <clears throat> to the five, the five Nordic countries. Yeah. And also, I mean, you do cover this as well, is that discussion about uh, it's not just that they're taking on refugees, but they, they have, you know, a great, um, I guess, culture around refugees. So you quote the fact that Sweden stands out with the highest proportion of residents, 76%, in fact, who have overall positive perceptions about the impact of immigrants on society. Denmark and Finland also ranking above the EU average. Um, And so, you know, it's interesting to see that an area that's become so politically heated and divisive, which really shouldn't be, I mean, even in those areas where we, as you say, assume that they're all kind of white, you know, Viking-looking, tall, (laughs) fantastic people, you know, like it's a very unrealistic and stereotyped uh, viewpoint. 
Yeah, yeah, it is. And I wouldn't mind just backing up a, a few topics uh, there. While, while while we didn't actually manage to uh, get any of the current female prime ministers or heads of state of Nordic countries to contribute to our book, uh, we do actually have a chapter by uh, Margot Wallström, the former foreign minister of Sweden, uh, who talks a lot about their efforts to get women into leadership. I mean, her, the chapter uh, focuses less on uh, domestic political leadership than in international forums and Sweden's time uh, with a, a um, seat on the UN Security Council <clears throat> and their insistence during that time on having equal numbers of women briefing uh, the council and uh, equal numbers of women involved in uh, peace processes and peace agreement signing and and those sorts of activities. Um, there there really is a lot to learn from their approach to to leadership and uh, and equality. Mm, well, I was really shocked to read that in that chapter that uh, fewer than 10% of peace agreements have female signatures um, and oh, that between yeah. 1990 and 2014, out of the 130 peace agreements, women signed only 13. Oh, it, it's an amazing point that she makes. And and she before she was the Swedish foreign minister, uh, she had a role looking at um, a UN role looking at the impacts of conflict on, on women uh, around the world. And, you know, she makes a very strong point that the impacts of war and famine are disproportionately felt by women and children. Um, and yet when it comes to negotiating the, the end or the, uh, the end of conflicts and ensuring they don't, or hoping that they don't flare back up again, uh, women are almost nowhere to be seen, and and yeah, so that was that was something she was very keen to address during their their uh, time at the UN Security Council, and uh, apparently have uh, enjoyed a lot of success with. Mm. And I mean, some people might think, oh well, it's very symbolic to you know put women in these roles, which would be a very cynical and I think very sexist thing to say. But lots of people think that. Um, yeah, but I, I think um, that. I mean, I guess we've started uh, we've started at the top by talking about a female foreign minister uh, insisting on females working at the UN Security Council. Um, but as Margot po points out in her chapter, you know, this this is drawn on this. Their foreign policy is based on <clears throat> the approach to equality throughout society. Uh, and the determination to help women participate more in, in the workforce and in every aspect of social life um, through things like access to decent childcare, uh, a radically different approach to paid parental leave that <clears throat> ensures men can play a real role in the upbringing of their children and women can get back into the workforce. So uh, far from being just a uh, symbolic uh, appointment, it, it is really kind of the tip of an iceberg of equality rather than a, not quite sure what the metaphor is, you know, a, a symbolic snowball. Mm -mm. 
Uh, no, you won't get any arguments from me. I think what's See how really I got it, brings... like snow, Nordic, yeah, very in good. There. That was yeah. somewhat consistent. Yeah. I see puns. I love it. Um, well, one of the things that really highlights that I think is the fact that if you don't have women advocating for women who are literally over fifty percent of the population. Um, of the world, then you do end up with outcomes where women um, are, have laws that are made without them being included, um, which means that there are either conscious or unconscious oversights in terms of the impact on women of certain issues. For example, sexual violence. Um, Margot says that 45 countries have no laws to protect women against violence in the home. She says in developing regions today, 214 million women and girls lack access to contraceptives. You know, there are so many things that uh, are really critical and especially at that UN level where a lot of these things are kind of signed up to, you know, when you don't have women up there saying, well, hang on a second, have you actually approached this with a gender lens? Have you looked at this um, and made sure you haven't completely excluded half the population? Well, a lot of the time people don't realise Oh, absolutely. And I, I think you see that in the comments that Scott Morrison made a budget or two ago about, oh, tax forms aren't in pink and blue, you know, which, which is a less uh, less groovy metaphor than I'm giving you of his uh, attempts to say, you know, men and women aren't taxed differently or the tax system doesn't affect men and women differently, uh, which you know, couldn't be further from the truth. And uh, in fact, you know, and again, we have a whole chapter on uh, the way uh, budgets and government budgets affect women uh, differently to men. And in, in fact, uh, an interesting point is that Australia actually started this. Australia started analysing government budgets with a gender lens. Uh, we did it in the Whitlam era, era and uh, through the 80s, and it's slowly been whittled back to the point where our Prime Minister now thinks uh, that budgets don't don't have a gender impact. Mm. Um, but, yeah, we started it and now we don't do it. And guess what? Nordic countries took the idea from us uh, and they've run with it and that's been a, a part of uh, bringing about the, the much more equal societies that they have. Mm. Well, funnily enough, I remember um, in my past role that I was advocating for gender budgeting to come back and uh, the, the arguments I got were, oh, but we already have that. And um, it ended up being a very brief six-page promotional PDF, which kind of briefly outlined a few little programs for women in entrepreneurial, you know, economic type um, policies. It, it really, gender budgeting, in fact, is not about here's our special policy for women. It's about looking at a budget in its entirety and actually applying a gender lens across it, which I found, you know, I guess at least heartening to see that the Victorian government here has just created, after a lot of lobbying, a gender responsive budgeting unit in Treasury. So actually within the right department that it should be sitting in, not in a special women's mm. department. And that, I think, is at least something of a progression back to what we were. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, back to the future. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, yeah, let, let's hope that that gets taken up by other states and eventually back into federal thinking um, because, yeah, our, our, our tax system and our welfare system have – a huge impact on 
on on women and men, and you know, they, it is literally about distribution and redistribution. Um, and so, if we're not thinking about that, then we're probably not thinking very hard about uh, what kind of society we want to be living in. No, and this is something obviously that comes up in the book um, is paid parental leave as an example, and it's one that you know is often discussed. Uh, and that you also reference in your first chapter, and that's the fact that Australia did um, kind of steal that uh, policy in a good way, um, but unfortunately it never went far enough and it did create a tiered system of parenting in a sense because um, the person who was seen as the birth giver of life um, was given the primary carer role and then the secondary parent, uh, whether they're male or female, were given a secondary carer role. And so there were very, you know, one had um, a set amount of leave and then the secondary carer role eventually um, received two weeks of parental leave, which obviously is just a drop in the ocean in a, a child, young child's life. So, you know, I wonder when we see the fact that it, I guess at least we've got one, um, what are some of the thoughts within this book around, you know, Sweden's paid parental leave, which I know is held out as this great example because it does provide uh, all parents with, you know, huge amounts of leave that they can use in different ways. Yeah. Well, at this point, I'd like to send a cheerio out to the living room in my house where the birth-giving parent and our uh, toddler and 10-week-old are listening to this broadcast. Um, Hello. So this so this is a topic very, very close <laughs> to home in, in, in this home. Uh, and yes, I burned through my two weeks of uh, government paid parental leave. Uh, I'm fortunate enough at the Australia Institute to have a very caring and supportive workplace that has been happy to have me work part-time for quite a long time. Um, but yeah, to, to look across at Nordic countries uh, and look at the kinds of arrangements that they have in place there is is uh, is pretty tough from here. Um, so yeah, you, you're looking at across the the different countries. They all have uh, different but similar approaches. Where at least 12 months paid parental leave, usually paid to around 80, you know, 70, 80 percent of uh, the leave takers' income, uh, is provided. So you know you're you're really on most of your original wage, uh, and uh, but I guess importantly, and from from this room of the house, uh, a lot of that leave can also be taken by fathers. In fact, uh, in most cases, some of it has to be taken by fathers. And if at least three months isn't taken by fathers, then the family isn't eligible for uh, the maximum possible leave, uh, pay, paid leave entitlement. Um, so you're seeing really different incentives going on there. You're seeing a real incentive for fathers to be part of their children's lives, to uh, to learn the skills um, that uh, many of us true blue Aussie blokes uh, don't learn and do take for granted and leave it <coughs> leave it to the misses. Um, and yeah, and and this you know this shapes society, and this is this is what helps. Uh, Women get back into the workforce. You, uh, along along with a uh, early childhood educa uh, care and education system that uh, leaves our system in the dust. 
Um, you know, it, it really has, <clears throat> while, while it's obviously focused on new mums and dads and kids, you know, it shows up across the population in terms of participation in the workforce, uh, reducing uh, crime and recidivism later on. Uh, you know, it, it really is a whole of life, whole of society approach to parenting, and it's one that uh, reforms in Australia are probably going to get get here too late uh, for me, mm-hmm. but um, still still worth pursuing. Oh, on behalf on, on behalf of the rest of you. Yeah, totally. And I, I know that this is something that would, you know, put off a number of people who would want to have children, but you know, wonder is it affordable for me to have a child to take time out you know, what about my career? What about the things I want to do still? And yeah, it's, it's worth it's worth highlighting that, you know, across Nordic countries of women in their 30s, participation in the workforce, you don't see a reduction. Mm. Um, so, you know, uh, sorry, so, sorry to butt in and mansplain no, while go. we're talking about female participation. <laughs> um, but the, the, the statistics are there that this works, this, this enables uh, women to have that career if they want to uh, or to bring up kids if they want to and for men to do the same. Yeah, and one of the parts of that picture is also uh, early childhood education and care, which really, I mean, it goes hand in hand because you can't have, you know, an effective paid parental leave system if then all of a sudden it drops off and you've got no way of, uh, you know, having your children looked after before they start school. So, you know, this is something which um, is pointed out in the book is the fact that uh, net childcare costs in Australia for a couple on an average wage um, absorb 16% of household income compared to just 4% in Sweden and 5% in Iceland. And, you know, we know here in Australia that early on in this pandemic, it is actually possible to make childcare accessible to all people. Absolutely. Uh, And this is a point, uh, I I can't remember if I made it in the book or in a subsequent article, as soon as the going got tough in Australia, we started to look a bit Nordic. We we made childcare free. We pumped up um, welfare payments. Um, So... Yeah, we we uh, suddenly uh, unions and employer groups work together. So when the going got tough, Australia enacted Nordic policies. Everything worked, uh, and then we kind of looked away and and didn't continue. But we can do it if we want to. I guess that's that's the point that uh, that COVID has taught us. Yeah, and one of the arguments against this would normally be why should I, as a taxpayer, pay more tax, uh, you know, have more money taken out of my pocket so that, um, you know, other people can have kids and childcare, et cetera, et cetera. It's a very kind of, you know, me-centred, individualistic um, scenario, which we have seen kind of as an ideology, a neoliberal ideology, become rather mainstream. And not everyone holds those views, but it is a common refrain of, you know, why should we pay so much tax? Um, what what are really the benefits, and isn't that just going to kill the economy? But I, I think what happens in in Nordic countries, and we, we don't really explore this in the in the book, uh, in in this book, but maybe maybe in the next book. Um, I I think that gets flipped around where because there are so many generous uh, social programs that almost the entire population benefits from at some stage in their life, whether or not it's the uh, 
free cooked school meals in their public education system, whether or not it's the uh, generously paid parental leave um, or uh, you know, we, we start the book with an anecdote of <coughs> uh, a young Swedish student who came on a internship paid for by the Swedish government to come and work at the Australia Institute. Uh, you know, middle, middle class and even you know, upper class uh, Nordic citizens have benefited from uh, social programs that are paid for by taxes and they know it. And so the approach to tax, uh, uh, the attitude towards tax is different because there there isn't this attitude of, oh, I've pulled myself up by my bootstraps and so why should I contribute to anybody else? Because everybody has participated in and benefited from programs like that. Uh, that they are generally far happier to pay uh, much higher rates of tax. Mm. Oh, and the benefits are so wide-ranging. Like, as you said, that student could really pick almost anywhere in the world that they wanted to go. Oh, he totally could. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is the one of the opening anecdotes of the book, and it's part of the reason the Australia Institute uh, got, got so interested in uh, Nordic social policies because – I, I was the guy, I was the one who's taking the calls and emails from this guy. He had some friends in Canberra, so he really wanted to uh, come out and work uh, in a research organisation in Canberra. Uh, he wanted to work at the Australia Institute. We, at the Australia Institute, we don't usually take interns or volunteers. You know, we like to pay people for their work. So uh, so this wasn't an arrangement that we would usually have have paid much attention to. I would have usually refused straight away. But I, I was interested that oh, my goodness, a government is going to pay one of their young people to go and work somewhere just about anywhere else in the world and get experience. And so I kind of, mm. I kind of teased the guy along, saying, I, you know, I wanted to learn more about the policy. I didn't really want to learn – I didn't really want him to come along. Um, but eventually – uh, push came to shove, and I, I was—I uh, was actually running to court. I was involved in one of the—I think it was the Adani court case in in Brisbane—and uh, I was giving expert evidence to it. And I was literally running to court, sweating in a suit. And my phone rang with a number I didn't recognise, and and I answered it, and it was this guy saying, "Hey, I've got to book things. You know, have you read all my stuff? Have you read my CV?" Um, can, you know, will you accept me? And I hadn't read anything he'd sent because I was too busy. Um, <laughs> and so the easiest thing to do was just say yes. And and he came, and it was fantastic. He wrote, he did some great research, uh, looking at how how fines work in Nordic countries, how traffic fines particularly work in Finland, and how that how they depend on your income and how that could be adopted in Australia. So, mm. um, I guess getting back to the original point. People like uh, Jesper was his name. You know, I mean, he's a highly educated, now reasonably high-income earning kind of guy, but he knows he got his start or a lot of help from the Swedish government and he's happy to pay his taxes. Yeah, and that's the thing, right? I mean, in this uh, the second chapter, which is co-authored um, by one of our regulars, Richard Dennis, I mean, it points out some of the fallacies in the arguments that we see, even from our own prime minister, um, when well, asked. Our prime minister says it comes up with fallacies. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Well, I mean, let's just talk it out because. An interviewer said, um, in, and he, you know, it's quoted extensively in this chapter, where is your evidence that higher taxes weaken an economy? And it's funny to hear that this is what the response was. Scott Morrison says, well, I think it's just fundamental economics 101. 
Um, yeah. As, as, I as mean, an economist, yeah. I can assure you that that is not the case. There no. is not. There is nothing in the Economics 101 textbook, uh, and I, I know you've probably had Richard on talking about yes. this. Econo babble, yeah. I, I, I haven't taught economics at a university level, but I know Richard say, has, and he always says he's he's taught economics at university, and there is nothing in the textbook uh, that. Uh, higher taxes necessarily lead to uh, reduced economic outcomes. Mm. And I mean, the in point, fact, the opposite. Exactly. The point the interviewer made was, well, that doesn't really fly if you look at the Nordic countries who are actually doing better on all of the benchmarks that we would like to. Yeah, and and as you said, I mean, you know, look, this this interview could sidetrack into. Uh, uh, you know, less than flattering discussion about Scott Morrison and his grasp on economics, but but let's let's keep it on the book that is available at all good bookstores, in particular Dimmicks and Hill of Content, where you can get click and collect uh, throughout the pandemic. Um, well, it's not just Scott Morrison; it's pretty much everyone in politics can can like roll out these. Oh, well, it's just economics. You know, you just didn't go to to university and study economics. And a lot of people would feel, well, oh, I guess I don't really know a lot about economics. And so it's hard to have these arguments about taxation and, you know, GDP and whether growth is good and all these kind of discussions that seem to try and, you know, be deliberately passed over our heads. Absolutely. And I I think that's actually a blight on the economics profession and on economists uh, who don't call this out often enough. Um, I think uh, economic language is often used to basically tell people to take their medicine and to obscure what's actually going on rather than to uh, help help us have an informed debate. Like, like you said, Richard calls it econobabble, uh, where economic jargon is used to make uh, private interest private interests sound like the national interest. Um, but, yeah, you referred to the second chapter that Richard's uh, co-authored along with uh, Matt Grudnoff, our senior economist at Australia Institute, and I, I think Andrew Scott co- yep. co-wrote it as well. Um, and th- they've gone through the data, and it's really, it's really interesting looking at uh, countries by their level of tax and various welfare measures. And basically what you come up with is there is nowhere in the world with lower taxes than Australia but a higher standard of living. So there's plenty of places with lower taxes and lower standards of living Um, and there's some places with higher taxes and higher standards of living, mainly the Nordic countries, but there's almost nowhere with lower taxes uh, and higher standards of living, uh, with a couple of sort of weird exceptions of uh, petro states and tax havens. And unless you're hoping that, well, <laughs> arguably the federal government would like us to become a petro, a petro state, um, but in the in the absence of that, uh, really, the the message there is. Uh, better economic outcomes than Australia is currently achieving can be achieved with uh, higher taxes. Mm. And just finally, Rod, we did see overnight the IPCC report, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, be released saying that really there's a possible loss of entire countries within the century. The picture is more and more dire and Australia 
does not really respond to these warnings. Um, but you do have a couple of chapters in this book specifically on climate change and related topics and the fact that, you know, you can be a resource-rich nation and still uh, have been and worked towards tackling climate change like Norway, for example. Yeah, uh, Norway is a major oil exporter, um, but rather than allowing foreign oil companies to take the oil, uh, make a couple of people rich and uh, make out like bandits, um, Norway has a long history of really effectively uh, taxing and owning stakes in its own um, oil oil companies um, and oil projects. Some of that's been covered in, in other books, um, particularly uh, Paul Cleary's book called The Trillion Dollar Baby, particularly about the um, uh, Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund uh, or Nor Norway's approach to, uh, to oil. Um, but what our chapter by uh, great researcher Tom Swan really looks at is comparing the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund uh, and its, its governance and its behaviour uh, compared to Australia's, you know, pale shadow of a uh, sovereign wealth fund, the Future Fund, um, and really showing how transparent and democratic uh, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund is relative to ours and what it's been able to achieve in terms of influence for Norway, but also it, towards climate change debate. Um, so the, this fund that was based on uh, petrodollars um, has been able to exert huge pressure throughout the corporate world uh, to move away from coal, oil and gas. And, yeah, there's sometimes accusations of hypocrisy towards Norway and, yeah, maybe there is a bit of that here and there. Um, but the chapter goes into really good detail about how we could be taxing minerals and fossil fuels and the good we could be doing with that money um, if Australia chose to. Yeah, and, you know... Pretty starkly, um, the Norwegian government reports that 23% of their budget revenue during the 2010s came from petroleum and in some years exceeded a third of their total revenue. So, I mean, that is just massive compared to Australia's situation, which really has just let mining companies off the hook. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Australia overall um, had, you know, raises almost no money from oil and gas and from mining more generally, you know, it's about 5% of government revenue. What, what I think maybe an interesting example is the Northern Territory. Um, through various ridiculous and arguably corrupt de de deals, um, the Northern Territory government is effectively a medium-sized gas trader in Australia. Uh, and, you know, it, it's its wholly owned state, its state owned uh, power company, Power Water Corporation, uh, earns around $250 million a year uh, through gas sales. That's a significant part of the NT's um, government revenue. Um, but yeah, you don't, you don't see the NT government out there saying, well, we should really be doing something about climate change. Uh, it's all window dressing and subsidies to the gas industry. Mm, yeah, there's obviously a lot of nuance to these policies, not just about how much you're taxing, um, which you can read about in the book. It is called The Nordic Edge, Policy Possibilities for Australia. 
Thank you so much, Rod. It's been fantastic to chat with you and to go into some of the topics. There's a lot more in this book we haven't even touched on, so I really do hope people can pick it up. And uh, the bonus is the footnotes, so, you know, (laughs) get into it. (laughs) Yeah, great footnotes. Really good footnotes, yep. (laughs) All right, thanks, Amy. Thanks so much, Rod. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And I have with me for the second hour here a fantastic author and writer, Harry Sadler. He has written a new book called Questions Raised by Qualls, Fatherhood and Conservation in an Uncertain World. And uh, this is, I think, Harry's second book. And his first book was about the Eastern Curlew, um, which was really widely read and very well received, I recall. And um, he does also happen to be on Twitter and tweet and share some of the beautiful nature that is around him at the moment in uh, Melbourne. So it's always good to have a bit of a timeline cleanser and see some non-political subject matter um, and look at the gorgeous wattles, for example. So I welcome Harry now. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, yeah, it's great to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's really lovely to be here. And Harry, I believe, well, if you're in Melbourne, you must be in lockdown, presumably. Yeah, that's right. I'm in in Melbourne, so I'm currently in lockdown number six, I believe it is, along with many, many other people. And probably, I mean, this might be a way and has been a way for a number of months uh, now to kind of get to know your immediate five-kilometre radius in a, a nature sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, at the moment, I'm completely fixated by the Yarra seal, um, which you might you might have heard about. Um, yeah. The seal that's been swimming up and down the Yarra, um, which is fortunately within my five kilometres, so I can sort of nip out on my bike and ride up and down and see if I can see it. And I've had no luck so far, but it's you know, there's worse ways to spend your two-hour daily exercise than cruising up and down the river looking at the looking at the scenery hoping to see a seal. <laughs> yeah. And I know that, you know, in this book you do talk about the really wonderful natural aspects of the bushland that is actually in Melbourne and around where you live and, uh, you know, so unique really to see it so vibrant in a city context. So there's a lot of different, you know, species of native animal and, you know, flora and fauna that are around in that area around the Yarra River, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're incredibly lucky in in Melbourne, really, to have a lot of green spaces, and particularly along the Yarra Corridor and then all the various rivers and creeks that feed into it. Um, it's really beautiful, and a huge matter of that is down to work that's been done over several decades by you know, community groups and local councils to restore and revegetate the bush along those those river and creek corridors. Um, I remember when I first moved to Melbourne, which was in about 2004, um, you know, when you first moved to a place, you sort of pick up a lot of received wisdom and you know, the Yarra gets a really bad rap side. So you know, for a long time, I just assumed, like everyone told me, there was, or like a lot of people told me, that it was about this sort of dirty, polluted river, which, you know, it is, but it also support, supports a huge amount of life and incredible diversity of life. Um, 
such as the seal, but also, you know, further up river, there's platypuses in Templestowe and, you know, the fruit bats, you know, the colony in Kew, which is up to 50,000 of them, depending on the time of year. Um, and Vakali, water rats, um, all sorts of wildlife all up and down the river in, in the water and in the bush around it. So we're really, really lucky to have that as a green space um, for those of us who are close enough to be able to to be able to use it and to be able to exercise along it at the moment. Mm. And I do, obviously, possums are a, <laughs> an obvious feature of Melbourne as well and very visible. And I was kind of amused to see that there's even a Facebook group for the possums of Melbourne University and people posting little possum videos and photos of them, like, jumping into bins to get food. Yeah, I've actually got a little ringtail possum that moved into the wall of my house last year. Um, uh, the grill on a vent high up in the, in the sitting room wall on the outside of the wall fell out and a little ringtail possum moved in. So I've put up a nest box for it, but it hasn't um, occupied the nest box yet. It's still, still happy in its little hole in the wall. Um, <laughs> still going old which school. Is, which is, yeah, which is quite lovely, and it's because it's a, an event, so you can see through it from the inside of the house. So it's, when it's a sunny day, you can always tell the possums there because you can see it's silhouetted. Well. <laughs> um, the possums also, the possums along along the river also support a pretty good population of powerful owls. Um, mm. There's quite a few powerful owls up and down the Yarra as well, which are a threatened species in Victoria, but they're doing reasonably well because they've got a lot of you know, green space along the Yarra to live in, and then a lot of possums to feed on. Yeah, well, they're, they're not going to become endangered anytime soon, I don't think, um, or at least not those type of possums. There are other possums, like the leadbeater's possum that's not so well off at the moment. Um, but, yeah, it's really great when you read this book to hear about the kind of walks that you go on even in Victoria, you know, and the, and the comparison you make I found really interesting between uh, living near Merry Creek and the Yarra River and all those gorgeous kind of bushland areas. And then you do make a comparison to Studley Park, um, which is near Kew. And I was really interested in that comparison that you made because it does – you know, speak of, I guess, a different kind of environment um, that is not, you know, this kind of wild bushland. And, and you point out that there are like invasive weed species that have, you know, sprung up there and and it kind of has a very different feel in a natural sense. Yeah, well, Stubby Park is an interesting one. I mean, it sort of it makes up the whole southern bit of Yarra Bend Park, really. Um and it's a bit of a, a bit of a mixture. There's you know there's old old houses there. There's obviously the, um, the Studley Park Boathouse, which is pretty well known, um, which is a really popular picnic spot. And then there are areas where again a lot of revegetation has gone on. They're really beautiful, but it's an ongoing process. So they don't necessarily have the wildlife that you might see at other in other parts of the river further further out and yeah the ground is you know and often often a lot of, a lot of places has you know, a lot of thick ground cover of oxalis and weeds like that so which you know, would look very sort of lush and beautiful and green until you sort of stop to think about it and then you realize yeah, it's probably better if it's not there mm. um Studley park is really interesting though for another reason which is that the last surviving population of eastern quolls in melbourne 
were actually in Studley Park up until the 50s or 60s, um, which is you know, quite a surprising, really inner city location for these you know, for these animals, for this, you know, these marsupial carnivores to, to cling on in. So that was um, quite a surprise when I was researching and writing the book to, to find out about that and to realise that. Yeah, well, let's talk about quolls because obviously it's the common thread throughout this book. And, you know, I've had a great chance to talk about quolls and some of the work that they're doing down in the Otways um, with quolls. But it's really great and fascinating to hear about the fact that they were so prevalent in early society um, when, you know, the British came over and colonised Australia for and, you know, obviously did a lot of terrible things um, and I don't even need to repeat them here because we go over them a lot, but one of those um, in an environmental sense was around land clearing, which you talk about, um, but also how that really has affected, like the human presence has benefited some native species but really affected other native species, um, including the quoll types of species that do exist in Australia and that were actually, I think you say they were called native cats in common parlance back then. Yeah, that's right. So if you go and look through old newspaper records or old magazine records you know, on, a, on a website like Trove, which is an incredible resource, um, you'll see them all being referred to as native cats or tiger cats, which is what the spotted tail quoll, which is the largest quoll species, were often called. Um, but yeah, there were historic records from the early colonial period, which you know, describe how the eastern quolls or the native cats, as they called them, were just abundant. They were described as one of the most abundant species in the bush. Um, now they're you know, now they're a threatened species, and they've been extinct on mainland Australia since the middle part of the 20th century, and surviving only in, in Tasmania until recent reintroductions. So. It's been a real sort of calamitous and precipitous decline for all the quoll species, really. Um, I think a really good example, really sort of emblematic of that, is the western quoll. So there are there are four quoll species in Australia, and the western quoll is one of them. Um, the western quoll used to be found at the time of European colonisation on 70% of the Australian continent, so it was found in every mainland state and territory in Australia. Uh, now it's found only in a little corner of southwest Western Australia. So it's, that gives you an idea of mm. the decline of quolls and many other native mammal species since European colonisation. Mm. Well, you talk about um, you know the Western quoll and just how you know large that landmass where they were found was, which was seventy percent of the continent, um, and also the fact that I think that was the quoll that had um, an indigenous name. Yeah, so it's often called the Chudich now, which is the the Noongar name, the um, southwest Western Australian indigenous name for it. Um, but if you think of its distribution across that huge area, you sort of start to think of how many other names it must have had and you know, obviously still does have because a lot of languages are still with us. Um, but it sort of gives you an idea of the reduction in the scale of this animal's range to think of it being reduced down to one to just one name. 
really, um, which of course also speaks to the damage done to the enormous damage done to Indigenous societies and communities with colonisation, which is an ongoing process. It's not just a historic process. Yeah, and obviously that effect on language, which you point out uh, through Jane Simpson's research at the ANU um, and the kind of loss of language in terms of part being able to pass it on to new generations of um, Aboriginal children and then, you know, how that affects the way that we talk about the environment and, you know, get to understand these native species that were so you know, well understood and that were so common and now, as you pointed out, um, really make up only 2% of their original range in uh, Western Australia. So, you know, that's a really staggering reduction in, you know, the the species itself. And also you point out those other species which really, um, you know, are so rare now and are found in these kind of private conservation reserves and also, of course, in Tasmania as being another kind of area which is quite interesting in terms of what kind of remains and what kind of pests or introduced species didn't quite make it and didn't really thrive in Tasmania. So, you know, I'd love to hear about the fact that you like open this book talking about, you know, these hikes that you went on with your father in so many different places, but of course, Tasmania is where you start out. What really got you interested in writing about quolls and using that as an entry point to talk about these wider issues of conservation and climate change and land clearing and also just the human population's impact on our planet? Yeah, well, I've always... I mean, I've always liked quolls. I mean, who doesn't like a quoll? <laughs> um, they're, they're very, very charismatic animals, but people who aren't familiar with them, they're marsupial carnivores. Um, they're, they've got various colours depending on the species, so they're sort of sandy, orange-coloured. Um, sometimes they're black. You know, the eastern quoll has a black form. Um, but they're all covered in these big white spots. So they're very, they're very, very attractive, very you know, charismatic animals. Um, and they've appealed to me since I was a kid. Um, and so I wanted to write, you know, one of the perks of writing about wildlife is getting to write about your favourite animals, which I did with <laughs> Eastern Curlew. Yeah. <laughs> and then it opened up various other issues. Um, but more serious point, I wanted also to write about the fact that Australia has the worst mammal extinction record in the world, uh, I think it's now. 34 species of mammal have gone extinct in Australia since European colonisation, so in the last 200 years, so a very, very short period of time, um, which is you know, it's a huge issue. I think it, it needs to be, needs to be you know, widely known that this is a, an ongoing process. You know, species are still going extinct. Um, in recent years, we've had the Christmas Island pipistrelle, which is a species of bat, and the um, Bramble cave melomus, which is a little species of, of native mouse, native rodent, both gone extinct. Um, other species like quolls are endangered or, or threatened. So it's a huge issue of the legacy of the ongoing legacy of colonisation of the Australian continent by, by Europeans is this enormous extinction rate of of all, all species, but particularly mammals. Um, and that's I mean, that's largely down to, to two factors, really. Um, one is habitat destruction, such as, you know, in the Mallee, where the western quoll used to live. Um, and the other one is the introduction of 
of feral predators, the two main ones being the fox and the cat. Um, the reason why Tasmania is a bit of a stronghold for a lot of these species, such as eastern quolls and eastern barred bandicoots that have otherwise gone extinct on the mainland, uh, is because foxes have never been has never become established in Tasmania. Um, foxes are a real, real problem. They're a major predator, particularly in the damper regions. Once you move into the arid regions, cats become a bit more of an issue, but foxes have been implicated in so many mammal extinctions in, in Australia. Mm. Well, it, I mean, one of the really striking parts of that book was when you did talk about the Mallee and colonial land clearing that happened. And you write that flat land is easily cleared. And Australia, particularly inland Australia, has a lot of flat land. And you go into, you know, the types of land clearing that happened and the ploughs that were used to, you know, rip up the trees and, and their stumps and roots. And there was a lot of felling of trees and burning of regrowth. Um, and really so much of the flora and fauna was destroyed. You say that as much as 65% of the Mallee in Victoria and 75% of the Mallee in South Australia. So, you know, these are things that have ongoing reverberations and effects and, you know, happened in the 19th century um, and, and onwards. And it's kind of staggering to think about the type of mindset that a European would have to come in and and do that level of destruction that occurred and you do reflect on that and that you know how how did they really do that and come come to that point and should I be reflecting on my own um, ancestors behaviors and values and ethics yeah and it's in, in some ways it's a mindset that we still celebrate so um the Mallee was cleared in large part thanks to the invention of the stump jump plough, which is, I think it's in the, actually in the National Museum in Australia. It's something that, you know, many people in Australia celebrate as this great invention and innovation. And it was you know, technically an amazing invention and it facilitated an enormous amount of habitat destruction in, in the Mallee. Um, so that kind of colonial mindset is still very prevalent, even if you know, maybe we don't realise that's what we're, what we're celebrating. Um, but, yeah, in terms of my own history, it's, it's interesting. Um, so my father's side of, of my family goes back to an ancestor of mine from Ireland named Michael Farrell, who was transported from Ireland, from occupied Ireland, was occupied by the British at the time, in the early part of the 19th century to Sydney as a convict. He was only, I think, 19 years old. He was very young. Um, he didn't serve a long sentence here. It was about seven years, I think, but transportation was essentially a life sentence. He never went back to Ireland. He established himself in in Sydney and became quite well off and became... You know, a publican and had his portrait painted or he commissioned a portrait to be painted by a society portraitist. Um, so he did quite well for himself in Australia. But that raises for me you know, really interesting questions of how this man from a colonised country, from colonised Ireland, 
who was you know, transported. There's possibly, there's a bit of uncertainty about why he was transported, but it's possible it was for sedition or for, you know, basically. He, he came from a part of Ireland that was very fervently anti-British um, at mm. the time. So it's likely that he had anti-British sentiments. He he had a, he had a horse which he named Napoleon, which um, is a fairly loaded loaded name. You know, um, was, Napoleon was no no friend of the of the British, that's for sure. <laughs> um, so for an Irishman to name his horse Napoleon was in the nineteenth century was quite quite a loaded message. Um, so we can sort of surmise that he probably had quite strong anti-colonial sentiments as they applied to Ireland. But then, of course, he became a, a colonist by virtue of being transported and, and then establishing himself in Sydney um, at a time of you know, massive upheaval in terms of displacement and and you know, massacring of Indigenous people, you know, destruction of native you know, wildlife and habitat, um, all of those things that went on with colonisation. So... It's interesting to reflect on how a man who was colonised then became a colonist himself um, and whether he ever ever reflected on that himself. We don't, we don't know all that, but it's not something that I'm, as his ancestor, obliged to reflect on, on his behalf. Yeah, yeah. Well, and one of the examples you give um, alongside the, that kind of reflection about colonisation was talking about the introduction of the cane toad, um, which was really interesting to me because of the the kind of really key detail that isn't often discussed, which is what the original pest was and why it was seen to be a pest um, and its significance. So I wondered if you could talk us through that because I just thought it was a, a really illuminating example. Yeah, I'd, like I think many, many other people, I'd assume that the I mean, I knew the cane toad had been introduced to feed on beetles and then uh, this behavioural ecology didn't actually lend itself to that, so it was a huge, huge failure. I had always assumed, as I expect many other people do, that the beetle itself was introduced because there's you know, this little classic story of you introduce one animal or one animal you know, becomes accidentally introduced and then you introduce another one to try and catch it. You know, it's the, it's the old lady swallowed a fly kind of a story. <laughs> um but I was really surprised to realise when I was researching the book that the beetles that were eating the roots of the sugar cane and, and you know, hobbling that industry, they were native beetles. So um, the beetles were here first and then the sugar cane arrived and they started to feed on it. So what that means is that the introduction of the cane toad um, was itself a legacy of the sort of colonial capitalist mindset of, you know, this sugarcane industry is more important than the native species when the native species are getting in, way of getting in the way of our industry, so we've got to bring something in to control them. Um, and then, of course, the cane toad now is a massive problem. It's one of the main reasons why the northern quoll is threatened, because the northern quoll, being a carnivore, eats the cane toads. The cane toads are toxic, so the, so the northern quolls die. No, the same things happen with a lot of other native species that eat toads and frogs wherever the cane toad spreads. Um, so this whole this whole sort of cascading effect of you know one of one introduction, but it goes back to again this issue of 
colonialism and capitalism and wanting to change what was already here into something more profitable and more useful to the sort of colonial capital capitalist project. Yeah. Well, it's something that, I mean, when you think about these native beetles, I mean, you mentioned there about insects in the book and how we all kind of just talk about, oh, well, there's less bugs and there's, you know, less flies and there's less beetles. And isn't that an interesting, you know, observation that we all have, but, you know, we don't really realize that it's just part of a highly complex ecosystem. And so when you're clearing land and um, removing dead wood and rotting wood, then you're actually removing the habitat for beetles to to grow and to live. So, you know, it's something that I just loved about this book is how it's really um, taking us out to the bigger picture about conservation and and human impact and especially that colonial impact on the environment. So, yeah, I, what was kind of, when you were reflecting on this, was that something you thought you would that would be so prominent in the book at the start? Um, you know, what were your kind of preconceived notions coming into it or did you have any at the start? Um, I'm very much a writer who sort of makes things up as I go, really, in terms of what I'm writing about and the directions I take. That mm. said, I knew that – so what I wanted to write about, I wanted to write about, you know, this story of mammal extinction in, in Australia, but also I wanted to write specifically about people who are working to reverse that. So there's a lot of discussion in the book about various preserves and various reintroduction programs for quolls and other species. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to write about that, but I feel like it's, it's sort of impossible, really, and I think, well, if not impossible, certainly you know, unethical, really, mm. as a writer, to write about the state of the environment in Australia uh, without taking into account or without addressing you know, front on the colonisation of Australia, you know, the European colonisation of Australia, because pretty much all the <laughs> all the damage that's, um, that we're facing in Australia with our wildlife and our natural environments right now are all a direct legacy of that colonisation and or the sort of capitalist mindset of, that goes along with it. Um, so I always knew that that was going to be a theme. Um, I didn't necessarily know it was going to become such a major part of the book, perhaps, but I think, you know, the more I wrote it, the more it became a thing that I hadn't had to address. Mm. Well, I think it's kind of stark, the fact that, you know, it is becoming more and more a part of the conversation of conservation now, but you know, previously I don't think it's something that was so front and centre and clearly it should be. Um, and it's the only way that, you know, we can actually really self-reflect in terms of Europeans and the coloniser mindset because, as you say, this mindset basically is throughout every part of our society still and it obviously has this ongoing legacy that is destructive and... Um, yeah, just it's kind of this invisible thing that permeates through so much of politics and policy and human behaviour um, in terms of, you know, like the colonisers' um, behaviour. So it's just something that I guess it struck me because it should be, I think, more prominent than it is. And it is clearly in this book, which is such a great feature of the book, I guess, is, is what I'm trying to say in a very roundabout way. Um, but yeah. one of, yeah, go ahead. 
I was going to say, well, I think also when you're writing about this particular issue of mammal extinction in Australia, because it's so clear and obvious that you know, this terrible record of mammal extinction has been driven by very easily understood mechanisms. It's been habitat destruction. It's been the introduction of, of feral or new invasive predators, and it's all happened in the last 200 years. Mm. So there's really, I mean, you can, you can you can try to deny that it's because of colonisation, but you're just arguing against the very plain and obvious facts. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And one of the examples um, that you mentioned or referenced earlier was um, arid recovery in South Australia, which is a wildlife reserve trying to um, do some really great conservation work. It's quite innovative and clearly has um, influenced a lot of other conservation reserves around the world, but also here in Australia in terms of the strategies that they've taken and the fences that they've put up to um, keep in and also keep out certain mammals um, to to try and teach uh, some of these more endangered mammals how to survive with certain predators in their habitats. Um, and one of the obvious things in the book um, that comes through is the presence of rabbits, for example, um, which was really interesting in this particular example because they, um, when they started to die off, there seemed to be a really interesting kind of thing that happened um, in that environment, but also cats and not just feral cats, but domestic cats and their significance to these type of reserves. So I wonder if you could share with us that story um, and the things that you took away from it as being, you know, illuminating to us um, in terms of the ways that conservation can be done and how perhaps governments can be pushed a bit further because um, obviously their vision for conservation is quite narrow and quite um, traditional. Yeah, so arid recovery, for people who aren't familiar with it, it's a big reserve about 500 kilometres north of Adelaide, about 20 kilometres from Roxby Downs, so it's in, the, in inland South Australia. Uh, and it's a fence reserve, so there's, there's more and more of these kind of reserves going up all the time. Um, so it's a big patch of bushland. It was fenced off um, with a big predator-proof fence to keep cats out, in particular cats being the main issue up there, um, and to keep rabbits out from digging under under the fence. Um, and then the area inside the fence has been slowly revegetated and repopulated with animals that used to be in that area, such as western quolls and stick nest rats, and which have gone locally extinct. Um, yeah, but they, they did a lot of experimenting with the... Um, the design of the fence to keep cats out, and they did a lot of experimenting with you know, having test subject cats to see if they if they could climb over the fence. And some fence designs were good at keeping large cats out, but smaller, more agile cats could get in. So they kept on having to tinker with the fence design until they finally found one that worked. And it was a combination of you know, metal-clad poles that cats couldn't climb up, um, you know, a, a, a couple of lines of, um, of electric fence. Um, all sorts of things, and the most important thing, which is what they call a floppy top, which is literally just a just a top of the fence, which kind of curves over and flops around. So the cats get up there, and it's a bit unstable, and they don't feel certain, and and so they don't, it discourages them from from climbing up there. 
Um, but yeah, with the rabbits, what they found is that once they had built this fence that cats couldn't climb into the reserve from the outside, from the desert around the reserve, um, they started then getting rid of the rabbits within the reserve. Um, and once they got rid of the rabbits within the reserve, they found that because there was nothing there for cats to eat, the, the remaining cats within the reserve actually climbed out of their own accord, which was quite <laughs> convenient. <laughs> <laughs> Very convenient. Yeah. Um, and then up there they've also been um, trialling this particular cat trap, which is um, the poison one called the Felixer, which is really sophisticated um, and relies on cats' grooming behaviour. So it has you know, it's really you know, clever, well-designed um, algorithm, I guess, within it, which is very, very... Um, accurate at recognising cats and recognising them as being cats and not other you know, native animals. So cats have longer legs, they've got more clearance, and so there's and they've you know, a particular size and they have a particular shape. So this Felix trap has various sensors, and once it detects something that it thinks is a cat, which it does with apparently very high accuracy, it squirts the poison gel, and then the cat grooms, you know, licks it up, and 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 dies. Um, you know, that's poison. Obviously, is you know, it's not something that anyone enjoys doing. <laughs> poisoning mm. animals, but it's also, I mean, it's also the most efficient way of of um, you know, getting rid of these feral animals and these you know, incredibly damaging animals um, and you know, feral cats, in particular, in the arid region, are a huge problem. Um, and much like foxes in the less arid regions, they've been implicated in a huge number of male extinctions and they're found pretty much everywhere on the Australian continent. Yeah. So they're well, the no, stats major, major problem. Yeah, the stats are really shocking that you give. It's um, that as many as 6 million cats are spread across 99.8% of the continent and that predation by cats has already caused the extinction of 20 Australian mammal species. So... Anyone who's um, going, oh, but what about the cats? Aren't they cute? Well, they're doing some massive damage and are part of uh, the extinction and endangered status of pretty much nearly everything that is kind of a low-lying uh, animal or bird or or any other kind of species. Yeah, and I mean, look, I'm I love cats. I've I've got a pet cat as well as a pet dog, but no, they've <laughs> they've got their place and it's not out in the bush. Yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. And there is that great um, area in Canberra that you mentioned where it's all about making sure that domestic cats are locked up overnight and are not out killing all kinds of animals. Yeah, and in fact, just recently in the last few weeks, the ACT government has passed a law that I think as of next year, I'm not sure exactly what that, so I might be wrong, but I think as of next year, all newly registered cats in the ACT have to be indoor cats, they have to be contained. Um, but even even now there are certain suburbs, like my parents live in one, which are near nature reserves, which are cat containment suburbs. That cats, Any cats there strictly have to be kept inside at, at all times. Mm. Um, there's a nature reserve which is you know, very similar to Arid Recovery. is another fence reserve over a huge area of... Um, of yellow box woodland and grassy woodland in the north of the ACT called Mulligan's Flat. Um, and they've been doing a lot of work with the community in the suburbs around there, making sure people understand you know, why 
cats need to be contained because you know, this reserve, again, has been repopulated with bandicoots and eastern quolls and all sorts of other you know, amazing wildlife. Yeah. It's gone locally extinct. Um, so there's a lot of, I think, community engagement that can um, you know, play a big role in helping people understand you know, the problems caused by, by cats. Absolutely. And yeah, I, one thing I wanted to touch on, Harry, before we have to finish up was the other part of the subtitle in this book, which is fatherhood. And it is also a thread throughout this book. And it's something that I was interested in when you were talking about, you know, having children, making the decision to have children. And you talk about the fact, you know, you put out a call out on Twitter to ask your network what their thoughts were about having kids and, and, the impact on the environment and what some of the considerations are nowadays for uh, people considering having kids. And so I just wanted to, to, I guess, finish on that point about your reflections on potentially being a father or not and that hypothetical child that you think of and talk about throughout this book. Yeah, it's a really... No tricky question, but it's a question that many, many people my age and younger are dealing with. So I'm in my early 40s, and people in their, in their 30s or even people in their 20s are really still grappling with this question of what are the ethics of having having a kid? You know, we think ahead to what the world's going to be like in you know, 50 or 60 or 70 years you know, in, a, in a human lifetime. What's the ethics of bringing a kid into that world? Um, and it's a really tricky one. I don't really have any easy answers <laughs> to it, to be honest, but it is something that I think it's something that hasn't been talked about a lot from not a lot of men talking publicly about it was there's a lot of articles and things written about this by by women but it's not something that's been discussed so much from the man's perspective so I thought it would be useful to to address that um one thing that does get raised a lot when people talk about having kids is you know the whole issue of overpopulation um um, I don't really have a lot of time for that argument. Yeah. To be honest, I'm much more interested in. So my, all my concern is much more what kind of you know, human or person is going to grow up in. Um, I feel like you know, when people say, "Well, you know, overpopulation is a major problem, and you, know, you can't bring a kid into into an overpopulated world," um, I feel like that's a almost a bit of a defeatist attitude because it kind of assumes that our way of living in the world and our current completely unsustainable, you know, social structure and economic structure is kind of immutable and is never going to change. Um, I feel like, you know, if we accept that, then we might as well give up now, to be honest. (laughs) Um, So I feel like this, this, this question of, well, you know, you can't bring into a kid into the world because you're adding to the overpopulation problem. And it's like, well, you know, the overpopulation problem is really more of a sustainability problem and we've got to fix that anyway. So yeah. it's not, for me, a compelling argument, but, you know, the question of what kind of world is, you know, is a kid going to be growing up in in the next you know, several decades mm. um, in terms of, you know, the the ongoing effects of climate change, which are, you know, to some extent already set in place because, you know, it's got a long tail with carbon pollution. It's all, you know, the effects would play out over decades and that kind of thing. So that's, that for me is a more is a more compelling argument um, when it comes to the question of whether to have kids or not. Yeah. But 
whether it, <laughs> whether anyone should have kids, I, I don't have don't have an answer to that. I don't think anyone does really. <laughs> but it's, yeah, no, it's a question that a lot of people are asking themselves. I'm included. glad it's a question you tackle. So, and and that's part of the book. Obviously, it says questions raised by quals, um, and you do raise plenty of questions in this book, which is why it's so thought provoking. So. Um, unfortunately, we've run out of time, Harry, but I'm so grateful to you for talking more deeply about these topics with us and hopefully it's, you know, sparked off some thoughts for people listening. Um, and if they want to, you know, consider these issues in more depth alongside you and go on the same, um, you know, travails that you go through and considerations, they can read your book, uh, Questions Raised by Quals, Fatherhood and Conservation in an Uncertain World. And a big congratulations to you on, on your second book. Well, thanks. And thanks so much for, for having me. It's been really great. Um, you, I'll, just yeah. say, I'll just say one more thing. If you, um, if you do feel compelled to go out and buy the book, it'd be really great if you bought it from an independent bookshop because particularly in Melbourne and I think elsewhere, mm. independent bookshops have been absolute stars during the pandemic and during the lockdown. Um, they've been doing amazing work, and, you know, shipping you know, books out and delivering them to customers and staying open online. So it'd be really, really great to give a bit of support back their way as well. Oh, couldn't agree more. Thank you for pointing that out. Thanks so much, Harry. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's been really great. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. And it's my absolute pleasure now to welcome onto the program Professor Mary Louise McLaws, who is an epidemiologist at UNSW and a member of the World Health Organization's Advisory Panel for Infection Prevention and Control Preparedness and Response to COVID-19. And we're going to be chatting right now about the federal vaccination modelling and targets that were brought to Cabinet, National Cabinet, discussed at National Cabinet and then also signed up to by the states and territories uh, not so long ago now. And there has been a lot of discussion about this. And I think in our last conversation with Mary Louise, we kind of prefaced this about what kind of targets we should be looking at and what um, it needs to include and involve. So I welcome Mary Louise now, who is in high demand and also such a um, so generous always to come onto the show and talk with us. So thanks so, so much, Mary Louise, for joining us again. It's a pleasure to join you. Now, this is something uh, obviously that we'd been thinking about for a long time in terms of what is that so-called magic number um, that we need to get to here in Australia to not go into lockdown, um, to not see huge cases, huge, huge rises in cases, especially of this Delta variant, which is very different from previous variants. Um, and I think there probably is this idea that there is some kind of magic point where things improve and go away and, um, you know, we get back to life as normal. But obviously, usually in life, things aren't as easy and clear cut as they seem. And it's the same thing, I guess, with this uh, discussion around a target and the different phases of restrictions that might be tied to certain targets. So I wanted to ask you about the National Cabinet targets, which are actually looking at the 
eligible adult population of 16 years and over um, and what those thresholds actually equate to and what they mean in, in the sense of the total population. So could you talk us through some of that uh, modelling that you have really been examining in detail and thinking about yourself? So the 70% target, let's take that one first, for transitioning from uh, A to B uh, in the national plan uh, really is, as you rightly point out, the 70% of adults 16 and over. They represent around 80% of the total population. So it's simple math. So 70% of 80%, or it's actually, if you want to be really accurate, it's 80.1%, but 0.1% uh, give or take, it still gives you about 56% across the total population. So if you lined up every Australian, that would be around one in every two would be vaccinated, but the other person would not be vaccinated. And that is not nearly high enough protection level, nowhere near high enough. Now, we have seen um, that over the last I think we're at 44 days now in New South Wales, no, 45 days, sorry, of lockdown. And that is a lockdown that prevents most of us from going uh, um, more than five or 10 kilometres uh, away from our, um, uh, our house. Um, it prevents us from socialising. And so it has all the elements of um, physical distancing. And we're required to wear a mask, although not a lot of people wear a mask when they're walking around the streets, um, uh, unless they're in the hotspots, but we should all be wearing a mask. And the reason I bring that up is because based on the Doherty um, model um, assumptions is that when they are looking at this 70% um, of the adults being vaccinated, they're then saying, yes, but there will be an opportunity to have um, uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions come into play. But I would remind them that these non-pharmaceutical interventions have been a disaster when it comes to the current outbreak uh, because we've had 99% of cases um, in in the um, during the lockdown, 99% of all cases in in New South Wales in the greater city have occurred since the lockdown. So I'm not sure exactly how they think that um, putting in place concurrent public health interventions with one in every second person being vaccinated will be nearly enough to uh, stop Delta from um, circulating wider into the community. Then they have 80% um, uh, of the adult population from going from B to C to D. And that 80%, I'll remind you, is 80% of the 80% of the total population. And that simple math, that's 64%. So that means around two in every three, People will be vaccinated, but one in every three won't be. And um, it's not nearly high enough um, because we know uh, from the, particularly the UK experience and the Melbourne experience now and the Queensland experience that Delta 
picks on people who haven't been vaccinated. And we aren't vaccinating our primary school children. And we have no plan yet, even though 12 years to 15 years have been approved to be vaccinated. We've got no plan to vaccinate the adolescents. So they're all at risk of acquiring COVID and spreading it into schools because we also know that um, Delta is unlike the um, previous uh, wild strains and unlike even Alpha that was highly infectious. It didn't seem to cause children to become so um, viremic, so to produce so many viral particles in their respiratory tract that they became a source of infection. It was the other way around. Adults became the source of infection to the kids. But uh, the UK experience shows a totally different pattern with Delta. They do um, regular uh, sampling of the community and looking at their rounds, round 11, 12, and 13, they've identified very clearly for us that um, from alpha and then going into delta being the dominant um, strain in the UK, um, that now five-year-olds to 24-year-olds are the um, age group that have the highest prevalence of delta. And that's um, from a couple of reasons. One, They've been left unvaccinated, and their 18 to 24-year-olds only just started to be offered the vaccine. And sadly, the whole world has really underserviced young adults by leaving them last. And yet they're the ones that have been carrying most of the non-Delta infections. And, of course, the younger children now potentially becoming a source to other kids um, means that there's likely um, that they'll cause inadvertently um, school outbreaks and then those kids will cause infections in their family and their family, if they're not in, um, protected with a vaccine, will then cause infections in the workplace. So even one in three who are not vaccinated is one too many and it certainly doesn't include any children. Yeah. And that's it. it was really surprising to me when I was listening to the presentation and looking at the slides and even the report, which says that they did look at the potential benefit of immunising school children between the ages of 12 to 15 years as a so-called thought experiment, um, but seemed to come to the conclusion that parents would be uh, the ultimate protection in terms of the parents being vaccinated rather than vaccinating children. And I wondered, you know, whether the modelling had inputs that didn't reflect the current scenario with Delta in the UK. Like how would how would you reach the conclusion that uh, protecting parents would be enough, I guess, as a secondary protection for children? Um, it is a very naive assessment that is based on an old understanding that is really um, of uh, pre-Delta. So I would suggest that uh, some of this issue uh, with these assumptions is because these uh, models were done um, early and haven't been remodeled with the uh, very, very clear um, 
uh, warnings from the UK, really clear warnings. Then if you don't take the clear warnings, and, and I have to remind you that the UK provide information free. And I, I'm not a UK um, uh, resident or a citizen, and I can get into the public health. It's called Public Health England. You can go in there. You can see their um, their results. You can go into Google and uh, type in in, in um, uh, uppercase React and then a hyphen one, and that's a um, a study that's being done, a university-based study that's being done in the UK that also goes into deeper analysis of um, what's happening around their community, and you can actually get some data. You can actually get Excel spreadsheet data, which is something that is very hard to get in Australia. So the, um, you have to be impressed with the amount of um, transparency. But it's a really important warning that children it um, can be um, sources of infection. And then if you don't go into the Public Health England site, just go into CDC in America that show that they are very concerned about children, that um, Moderna, which we are now getting, which is great news, um, is uh, licensed to be given to 18-year-olds and over. Pfizer's been licensed for 16 years and over, but Moderna um, and Pfizer are both running, uh, well, Certainly, Pfizer's running a trial looking at the efficacy and safety in kids, little kids from five um, to 12, because Pfizer's been given um, what's called emergency use authorization by the FDA for giving it to 12 um, to 15-year-olds. And I think really that you know this is a vaccinatable disease, vaccinatable disease, meaning we can actually get on top of this with the vaccine. Um, Mind you, though, every vaccine doesn't have 100% efficacy. But if we vaccinate enough of us, we'll develop like a, um, a, like a fence um, mm. that prevents the virus from getting in. But if you've got one in three in that fence who's vulnerable uh, to a highly infectious agent that now, on average gets uh, somebody who's infected to produce a thousand times more viral particles in their respiratory tract, you're talking about a formidable warrior, formidable. So it can't be that one in three not vaccinated in the general community. So we really do need to be far more aspirational. Yeah. And obviously in Victoria, we've seen huge amounts of school outbreaks in the last few outbreaks that have locked us down here. And, you know, it goes to show that clearly um, the Delta virus is presenting itself differently in children. And you've written, <clears throat> excuse me, a great article about children and, and the Delta variant. And we haven't even, that's just dealing with the current variant we have. We don't know what future variants there may be, but I, I'm sure that there are plenty of parents listening who, um, you know, maybe were unaware that this hasn't been factored into our opening up plans uh, and that, you know, 12 to 15-year-olds clearly are a key area. They have been approved to have Pfizer, um, but they don't have access to the vaccine unless they're um, an Aboriginal Australian child or someone with a serious health condition. 
like those people in in the 1B phase for adults that we saw earlier. So, I mean, if we're looking at 12 to 15-year-olds and even earlier, which are that age group is, um, you know, being part of trials across the world as well, the earlier years, um, what really should we be looking at in terms of the total population? Because clearly when we're only talking about the eligible adult population and having such low figures of uh, one in two or two in three, 56% uh, or 64% of the total population vaccinated, I mean, we're going to end up having some very serious, harsh realities uh, if we do follow that plan and, and follow the, you know, lifting of certain restrictions. So, you know, how would we actually safely lift these restrictions that were planned and what would be the better targets? Well, I started to redo my analysis in May when the US um, had approved um, for, uh, for adolescents to be vaccinated with Pfizer. And the uh, lowest level across um, the, the, the children um, 12 and over would be 80%. That would be the beginning. And that's, you know, that's only about, you know, just, just under 70% of the total population. That's not good enough. And then I um, uh, retweaked it for, of course, Delta, when we had Delta. And that, uh, that, that was based on uh, a much less um, formidable uh, agent. And then I redid that, did it. And we need about 81% of the total population vaccinated. It's huge. Now, that would make the government feel very anxious because it's a very big ask, you know, eight in every 10 of us being vaccinated. And some of us can't be vaccinated um, because of medical conditions. Um, others can't be vaccinated because um, they have um, a problem with, uh, you know, a, a really important um, dis dislike of, of AstraZeneca because it's been developed on fetal line cells, which was occurred about two decades ago, but nevertheless, um, you can't disrespect that. But now with Moderna and with more Pfizer, uh, people who have a religious or cultural um, dissuasion against AstraZeneca should be able to be offered something that they can take, which is great news. But not everybody will be able to be vaccinated immediately. And, and, and it's about equity as well. When do you start opening up without actually ensuring that everybody's had the ability to access the vaccine. And it's all about um, uh, equality for access. And the young adults and adolescent um, kids in Australia have not had that access. So equitably, you can't open up any of these restrictions until you've given young adults enough access. Now, I keep hearing that, um, that there are some who can't get their first dose because when you get onto the booking site online, you can't get your second dose in six weeks' time for, say, AstraZeneca. And that means they can't get any dose. So my advice has been ring up your state government representative in your area. 
find out who that person is and ring them up so they can sort the problem out. And I've had people do that and they've come back to me to say, it's been sorted. When they've tried to go to the Department of Health, either their website, their telephone, they haven't had any joy. But as soon as they've rung up their representative, their state government representative, all of a sudden everything's fallen into place. So that's good news. But nevertheless, young adults have to have had time to be able to access dose one. And remember, dose one pre prevents everybody from severe illness, hospitalization and death. A dose is so much better than no dose. But your second dose, particularly for young adults uh, and for children, uh, protect against um, symptomatic disease. That first dose has very low reduction in symptomatic disease to a point where it's not huge. So it's all about self-protection and staying alive and having uncomplicated disease. But that second dose reduces um, symptomatic disease remarkably well. Any of them, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, it's just fabulous because um, if you don't have symptomatic disease, then uh, even if you have asymptomatic disease, you're not developing sufficient virus to make you highly infectious. So we can actually cut that vicious cycle of infection transmission. Mm. And one of the things I wanted to pick up on before we have to finish, uh, Mary Louise, was something that you also bring up in an article in The Conversation and I've been quite disturbed by, which is uh, the messaging that's come from the New South Wales government about getting more freedoms uh, once they reach a trigger of 50% or 60% vaccination. And it's a little bit murky as to whether that means first doses and or full, fully vaccinated, two doses, um, because the Premier has said the challenge for us is to get as many people vaccinated in August as possible so that by the time August 28 comes around, we have a number of options before us as to how we can ease restrictions. Now, any, you know, epidemiologist I've seen has been quite shocked with their jaw on the floor at the idea that you would open up um, at that kind of level um, or even just ease any lockdown restrictions at all. So I was really interested in what your observations and thoughts were as to these uh, targets, because I think a lot of people may not have the toolkit to be able to question the modelling and the evidence behind these kind of statements. Yeah. Okay. So 50% of the adult population is 50% of 80%, because remember, adults represent 80% of the full population, or 80.1%. 50% of them is 40%. So what the Premier is talking about is gobsmacking, that four in every 10 people will have the vaccine, but six won't. So I can't actually see how that will enable uh, us to open up safely. So that six people won't be protected from death, severe illness, hospitalisation. And we do know that the majority of vaccinations have been, up, have been taken up by the elderly. And that's because we had a, a, a very big um, um, 
commitment to saving them from from death. But what we have done it inadvertently while doing that is actually putting young adults at risk. So that four in ten having the vaccine may well represent those that have been older that have had more time to be vaccinated. And um, I actually think that that this approach is very inequitable apart from dangerous. So that six, six of you will not be vaccinated and then they'll be opening up. Now, you're quite right, is it one dose or two? Now, one dose, it's still not aspirational. Yes, uh, four in every 10 won't have to go to hospital and all the complications with that and won't have severe infection. Uh, but um, they, they certainly have left uh, the six in 10 at the enormous risk. So I don't know if it's a call to arms, um, sorry about the pun, uh, to, to get people to realise and get scared, um, but they haven't explained why they should be scared. And I'm, I'm not just scared, I'm really furious because it's not looking after our younger generation and our younger generation are our future and quite frankly, they need to be well, well protected so that they have a happy um, elderly life and they are really um, uh, healthy enough to be productive and to be leaders. So I'd like that 50% of the 80%, that's 40%, to re really be explained about on, on what philosophy or what modelling could possibly have said that that was safe. Yeah. Well, with the trend in cases going up, we saw today the 356 local cases announced. 102 of them were in isolation. Uh, 40 were in isolation for part of their infectious period. 57 were not at all for their infectious period. And 157 are still under investigation. So they're clearly not known to contact tracers through any other means at the moment, which is quite concerning. And it's a, a figure that has kind of started to be left out of the press conferences is that breakdown um, and people just saying, oh, well, at least this many people were in isolation. Given that that is a key metric and the Premier herself and the, um, de the Chief Health Officer said it was the metric was to have all these people in isolation, uh, people, a lot of, you know, debate is going on about, oh, well, has New South Wales left this too late? Is vaccination really the only choice we've got? And then we're seeing this argument, there should be a circuit breaker um, from the, the CMO here in at the federal level. I just wonder, just to finish this conversation, you know, what your thoughts are on the future for New South Wales looking forward and, and that kind of debate that's going on? Um well, you have to be very mindful that vaccination will not get us out of this um, outbreak, not at 40 percent of the 80 percent, um, not even 80 percent of the 80 percent, because that's just, you know, 64 percent. That's, you know, two and three are vaccinated. Uh, what we need to get out of this is control of um, the proportion who were contagious and in the community for whatever time they were in the community. So partial, um, uh, some, not at all. Um, they have to have been in isolation for the whole time they were infectious. So there is, there should be no way out of this in the meantime. 
um, without a without some uh, other um, non pharmaceutical interventions because having one dose will stop you from dying but won't stop you from catching this. It'll stop you because you've only got 33% reduction of a symptomatic infection with the first dose with Delta. So that's great. Um, there's still, you know, 70-odd percent um, likelihood that you'll get an infection, but a really reduced likelihood of, by about 77% of hospitalization and about 95% of death. Great. But you still get infection and you'll still spread it. Mm-hmm. So I can't actually see how that this um, philosophy is at all outbreak management. No, it's definitely not. Um, well, people can check out your conversation article with your co-authors to see the seven ways that you've proposed to fix Sydney's outbreak. Um, but I really thank you, Mary Louise, for your time. I know you're very busy and um, appreciate all your insights today. It's always a pleasure. And please stay safe and get the vaccine. Absolutely. And you too, Mary. <laughs> Mary Louise. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.